It has been said, I use words that are too big and hard to understand. I will try to, with the exception of direct quotes from our Constitution and our TCA code, our laws, describe my thoughts in a way that most can understand. I want to show, by using the skill taught in my high school years, a method of thinking through the gobbledygook that is the General Assembly's sausage-making. I'm going to attempt to prove. Proof. The clear, logical, and convincing delivery of evidence that compels acceptance by the mind of a truth or fact. And no, it has nothing to do with fact-checkers, but rather falls under the emperor-has-no-clothes story. Facts. Article 1, Section 1 of the Tennessee Declaration of Rights. That all power is inherent in the people, and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their peace, safety, and happiness. For the advancement of those ends, they have at all times an unalienable and indefeasible right to alter, reform, or abolish the government in such manner as they may think proper. Article 1, Section 2. That government being instituted for the common benefit, the doctrine of non-resistance against arbitrary power and oppression is absurd, slavish, and destructive of the good and happiness of mankind. Article 10, Section 2. Each member of the Senate and House of Representatives shall, before they proceed to business, take an oath or affirmation to support the Constitution of this state and of the United States, and also the following oath. I do solemnly swear or affirm that as a member of this General Assembly, I will in all appointments vote without favor, affection, partiality, or prejudice, and that I will not propose or assent to any bill, vote, or resolution which shall appear to me injurious to the people or consent to any act or thing, whatever, that shall have a tendency to lessen or abridge their rights and privileges as declared by the Constitution of this state. And by the way, Article 10, Section 1, every person who shall be chosen or appointed to any office of trust or profit under this Constitution, or any law made in pursuance thereof, shall, before entering on the duties thereof, take an oath to support the Constitution of this state and of the United States, and an oath of office. This means every person who draws their pay from the taxpayer, if we are not requiring that of those who work in the departments, we are not doing our job. All of this being said, we as a people hold a special place for those who violate their oath and commit official oppression. We have statutes, or, as Rush used to say, for those in Rio Linda, laws that are supposed to punish that abuse of the trust we place in those we hire. TCA Part 4, Misconduct Involving Public Officials and Employees, 39-16-403, Official Oppression. A public servant acting under color of office or employment commits an offense who intentionally subjects another to mistreatment or to arrest. Detention, stop, frisk, halt, search, seizure, dispossession, assessment, or lien when the public servant knows the conduct is unlawful or intentionally denies or impedes another in the exercise or enjoyment of any right, privilege, power, or immunity when the public servant knows the conduct is unlawful. For purposes of this section, a public servant acts under color of office or employment if the public servant acts or purports to act in an official capacity or takes advantage of the actual or purported capacity. An offense under this section is a Class E felony. Charges for official oppression may be brought only by indictment, presentment, or criminal information, provided that nothing in this section shall deny a person from pursuing other criminal charges by affidavit of complaint. Proofs have sections of ifs and thens. I will lay them out in simple language. Ifs. First, 
Elected officials want to be elected or they would not throw their hat in the ring. A well-known politician from Tennessee, David Crockett, said this, It was nonsense to talk about it being such a sacrifice to come there. For if it were, they would not see so many grasping to be members of Congress. Second, they take an oath once they win. We covered that previously. Third, they say they understand the constitutions of the state and the union in that oath. How else could they offer to protect and defend the rights and privileges written there? Nowhere in the constitutions of either the state or union does it say their feelings matter. Only the rules written down do. Fourth, favor, affection, partiality, and prejudice are not allowed in the way our elected employees in the General Assembly consider legislation. If a group or person brings to light factual evidence that the laws of this state do not comply with the constitutions, it is the duty of said legislators to honor their oath and change those laws, regardless of the person or group who supports the correct interpretation of that law. Fifth, elected employees and department hires paid by the taxpayer are required by law to protect the rights written down in the constitutions. If they do not, they commit a crime. Then, Number 1. TCA Code Section 3917-1307-A1 is unconstitutional and needs to be deleted from the laws of our state. In the Bruin decision of recent days from our Supreme Court of the United States, we are told in keeping with Heller, we hold that when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. To justify its regulation, the government may not simply posit that the regulation promotes an important interest. Rather, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearms regulation. Only if a firearm regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition may a court conclude that the individual's conduct falls outside the Second Amendment's unqualified command. Further, they state, we clarified, that examination of a variety of legal and other sources to determine the public understanding of a legal text in the period after its enactment or ratification was a critical tool of constitutional interpretation. The Bill of Rights was ratified in 1791. Our own Tennessee Constitution was ratified in 1796. The analogous section of our Constitution which means the thing in ours that references theirs at the time said that the free men of this state have a right to keep and bear arms for their common defense. There was no qualification as to in public or private, or to intent, as our current unconstitutional law states. The plain text says that government shall not infringe that right. In the ruling subsequent to Bruin from U.S. v. Perez-Galan, Federal District Court of Texas, Judge David Count says, Before Bruin, the Second Amendment looked like an abandoned cabin in the woods and out of vines, weeds, and roots left unkept for decades, crawling up the cabin's sides as if pulling it under the earth. Farm regulations are that overgrowth. Starting with the Federal Firearms Act in 1938, laws were passed with little, if any, consideration given to their constitutionality. That is, until the Supreme Court intervened in Bruin. No longer can lower courts account for public policy interest, historical analysis being the only tool. But after growing unchecked for almost a hundred years, today's tangle of gun laws have left lower courts with a Gordian knot. And after engaging with this nation's tradition of firearms regulation several times already, the court's unanswered question 
is whether Bruin demands lower courts manicure the Second Amendment's landscape by scalpel or chainsaw. It is time that Tennessee moves back to our historical tradition of allowing non-criminal citizens to bear their arms in case of confrontation. No entity of government is responsible for the production of safety or security for any individual. Rather, they are protected from being responsible by qualified immunity. Tell your senator and representative to honor their oath and return the right to arms intended in 1796.